Hi there, welcome to episode 20 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Um, joining me, uh, as for the last two episodes now, is uh, Mort. Hi, Mort. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad. And finally, we have uh, Claire on the show with us uh, live, I suppose. <laughs> welcome to the show, Claire. <laughs> hey, Ken. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for both of you, actually, for your contributions to the site, especially recently. It's been good. Okay, so this week we have... I guess my the person I've been trying to get on the show the most since episode one and uh yeah I think you mentioned that to me back uh maybe last June or so yeah it's been one of those things where it's just kind of hap- happened and then not happened and blah 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 and it's we finally got him we finally got Douglas Rushkoff and it's I'm absolutely psyched about it it's uh easily my favorite writer of his generation I, I, I suppose and he's kind of to me the natural follow-on to people like Robert Anton Wilson and uh all these kind of you know hipster guys from the <laughs> do you guys yeah it's kind of yeah, cool, really cool to have him on and uh so uh just have a quick look at the activity on the site this week which is what we've been trying to do we've uh obviously we had long molly duquette on last week and that was uh that's gone really well we've had a lot of good feedback on that we always like having lon on the show and i think we're gonna have him back for episode 23 um along with some other guests and obviously 23 is quite a significant number if you're a uh, a fan of Robert Anton Wilson, like <laughs> oh, I said yes, before. <laughs> um, we've, uh, yeah, we've, we've started to get knock out some more of the counter comic reviews. Um, thanks again to Daddy Tank, who's uh, he's doing our uh, MySpace Heroes section now as well at the end of the shows. And uh, yeah, no, it's going really well. And also we've had a somewhat of a outburst from our, uh, our Mr. Mortimer <laughs> here. <laughs> He seems enraged by uh, Taylor Elwood's uh, most recent article. I'm not enraged. (laughs) Just trying to create controversy. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, okay, well, we'll... uh, Oh, it's a bit strange, but we'll roll to Claire's weekly weird news now, and uh, uh, we'll see you after that. Welcome back to the Weekly Weird News. This is Claire. Sorry about last week. Things got a little bit busy. I'm going to get right to it. A Turkish inmate in Western Germany escaped from prison recently by hiding in a cardboard box that was promptly mailed off. The drug dealer made his escape by cutting a hole as soon as he made it out of the premises and has still not been found. A geek couple has divorced over the computer game Second Life after wife Amy caught her husband David cheating on her digitally. In the game, people lead alternate existences with self-created personas or avatars, which are generally more suave and sophisticated than their real selves. 
Also more attractive, when Amy caught her husband making a love to a pixelized prostitute, she hired an online private investigator to check on David's digital infidelity. So it went, David had been seeing another American virtual girl for two weeks. She found them coupling, coupling, cuddling. Uh, the couple divorced for, quote, unreasonable behavior. Two new flying lemur species have been found. Due to split in the species, which is actually the species of an acrobatic primate, these, quote, lemurs have evolved to glide. In El Paso, Texas, the parents of students on a dance team laced the contents of baked goods for a rival team with bleach and rat poison. Though the food was confiscated before anyone had any, members of the rival team said they wished to press criminal charges. In Beijing, a police chief has arrested 48 of his relatives. So much for familial exceptions, he sent 25 relatives either to jail, then had the others sent to, quote, re-education through labor or punished in other ways, a report said. The offenses included such crimes as far between as stealing woman's handbag to beating local teachers at a primary school while drunk. The police chief says, In the first few years, I did not dare head back to my hometown to pass the New Year holiday, but now it's alright. Everyone understands and supports what I was doing at the time. Remember that baby on the cover of Nirvana's Nevermind album? He's 17 years old now and has decided to recreate the album cover. He says he intends to use the pickup line on women, Hey, wanna see my penis? Again? The pastor of a megachurch in Dallas, Texas has decided to issue a challenge to churchgoers. He has given the married congregants the assignment to have sex for a week straight, claiming that while he sees society advocating promiscuity and debauchery, sex should be reclaimed for married couples. Meanwhile, the American Humanist Association is making efforts in a $40,000 holiday campaign to put out ads on DC buses reading, Why Believe in a God? Just be good for goodness sake. The spokesman of the group, Fred Edwards, says, Quote, our reason for doing it during the holidays is that there are an awful lot of agnostics, atheists, and other types of non-theists who feel a little alone during the holidays because of its association with traditional religion. Edward says the purpose isn't to argue that God does not exist or to change minds about a deity, although he adds, quote, we are trying to plant a seed of rational thought and critical thinking and questioning in people's minds. The group defines humanism as, quote, a progressive philosophy of life that without theist, uh, theism affirms our responsibility to lead ethical lives of value to self and humanity. And last month, the British Humanist Association had a similar campaign on London buses with ads saying, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. On the other hand, religion has its purposes for others, or would, if they didn't get caught like a New York City man who tried to smuggle a date rape drug into the US by claiming the vessels holding the liquid contained, quote, holy water. And since it is indeed the holiday season, I will recommend possibly the greatest gift that you can offer to any and every person you know, the Feng Shui Fortune Compass. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want gratitude, this is it. FortuneCompass.com is selling this winner for a mere $399. With it, you will, quote, instantly know which directions in your environment offer you the most support possible for your potential personal success, relationships, health, and spiritual growth. Dear listeners, it is a good day when machines can directly orient us toward general life improvement and success. So uh, Scott, I've uh, I've kind of decided to become a superhero now. A superhero. Yeah, like you know, like a full, um, like saving people, burning buildings, pretty ladies, stuff. You know, all that stuff, all that good stuff. Really? Well, what's your superhero name? Um, awesome man. Wow. Uh, don't quit your day job. Hey, this is Scott. And this is Ben, and we're your hosts for Two Geeks, a Mic, and a Podcast. The show where we discuss all the latest news and rumors in the entertainment industry, all from a geek's perspective. The only perspective that matters. Join us on the web at geekshow.us. Where we become our friends at MySpace at myspace.com slash two geeks. Two Geeks, a Mic, and a Podcast. We're here to save your day. 
well normally at this point i say um thanks to claire but claire's here so yeah thanks claire well thank you yeah yeah and uh, keep up the uh, the good work with the weekly wood news we enjoy that stuff so our interview today is with uh, like i said earlier one of my i'm a bit of a fanboy i've got to admit actually i'm a bit of a fanboy of douglas Rushkoff. i've read all of his books and pretty much everything he's ever written as far as i can get hold of and uh, yeah so um this is quite a big deal for me i mean i've been trying to get interviewed with him for ages like I said and uh, I don't know what kind of what kind of got you guys into Douglas Rushkoff well uh, for me uh, I kind of got introduced to him through the disinformation website back in the sort of late 90s um, he always kind of struck me as an interesting character uh, very articulate um, for me I think I was about 15 16 I was doing a, I wanted to do a research paper on the media because I was really interested in uh, advertising and the kind of effect it has on people I guess just uh, looking around at American society and the way that people just consume sort of interests me and then um I found him and, uh, and Naomi Klein, and I just went through his books, you know, Coercion and Media Virus and, and that kind of thing. And yeah, I just loved what he had to say. So he's kind of like the natural kind of uh, follow up to people like Robert Anton Wilson and these kind of people that kind of look at mainstream kind of media, I guess, through a kind of uh, more of an alternative lens almost, if that makes sense. <laughs> He's, yeah, I always, I always yeah, feel absolutely. put to shame. You know, I always feel put to shame when he's uh, the amount of stuff he seems to cover and uh, is involved in. You know, it's uh, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, he's definitely one to. Uh, I think any any interview I've ever heard with Douglas Rushkoff has been kind of. It's just always really great, and it always leaves my mind buzzing at the end and all that kind of thing. So it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to listen to the interview a couple of times to make sure I get everything. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Well, let's roll to that interview now. Douglas Rushkoff, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, give us kind of a brief biography of yourself and your work. Well, I can give you the biography that a listener might care about. Um, <laughs> I've uh, written a bunch of books on media, technology, and culture, and I've um, always been really looking um, looking at the ways that uh, you know new media developments and new cultural developments can uh, you know enhance human agency. And then the ways that uh, sort of status quo forces, usually big centralized institutions, tend to uh, reverse the effects that uh, uh, that I'm hoping for, and uh, you know, looking for for ways for for real people in uh, bottom-up enterprises to um, regain uh, some footing on a landscape that seems uh, you know increasingly dominated by. Uh, well, by institutions that were created by people who uh, really left the building a long time ago and, uh, uh, you know, are no longer with us. Um, but I think before we sort of go into this kind of stuff, I was going to ask you, what, were you happy with the election result? Um, well, we don't know what the election result is yet. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm happy that uh, <laughs> for the time being that that the guy um, I preferred uh, won uh, less, I think, because of his... Uh, you know his ability, or even the putting him even in a, less the fact that he's even necessarily in a position from which he has the leverage to uh, create real change, but rather because um, it demonstrates to the world that America is capable of uh, you know choosing a basically competent leader, you know, mm, and yeah. that we're not. Um, we're not all, uh, uh, you know, proto-fascists or, 
or you know bizarre warmongering imperialists. So I think I think it's important that the world understands that you know we as a people are in the same boat that they are, you know, and subject to the same kinds of uh, of, of corruption and domination as anybody else. One thing I found really interesting was the way that uh, Obama's campaign people kind of utilize the internet in a way that no other kind of campaign trail has in the past. I mean, he almost kind of took a kind of almost like a subcultural countercultural approach by kind of kind of appealing to this kind of geek culture that seems to be quite prevalent online at the moment. I was wondering, did you notice that as well? Or? Well, yeah. I mean, it was certainly a step beyond what a, a candidate named Howard Dean did uh, four years ago. Um, you know, Howard Dean really tried to marry a, a traditional top-down candidate with bottom-up fundraising. Mm. And Obama's a step beyond that in that he's... Uh, Using the uh, the internet as an extension of his competency in community organizing, you know that here's a way to uh, uh, sort of meet out the various tasks that a campaign needs needs to accomplish to a willing population of of you know would be activists. So you know here's a way to get uh, you know thousands of people to make phone calls on behalf of the campaign or to 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 knock on doors or to send out emails or to uh, you know, uh, get out the vote. You know, so from that perspective, it was really good. Where, um, where they're going to have to to change their course a bit um, if they want to govern well is to look at well, what is participatory democracy from a governance standpoint? What is true civic participation? And that is something that doesn't generally get accomplished by people signing on to volunteer for some big movement or some uh, uh, branded organization. It tends to happen much more um, people contributing their own, uh, their own ideas, um, you know, their own uh, people actually getting involved um, locally. You know, it, it feels good to be part of a giant top-down movement and to help get a guy elected. But uh, putting him in office is really just the very, very first step. You know, now we have someone in the executive branch who is committed to not standing in our way. You know, he can't actually do it for us. He can't uh, invigorate uh, uh, civic participation, but he can, you know, unlike Bush, he can um, not serve as, a, as an obstacle to that. Mm. But the genuine participation is up to us. So. Now, how are we going to use the internet to organize, to actually um, create and share models through which we can develop, you know, everything from alternative local currencies to public schools to uh, uh, community-sponsored agriculture? I think in some ways as well as he kind of uh, raises the the level of discourse to a more sort of intellectual level as well, rather than Bush appealing to the lowest common denominator in, in some respect. Yeah, that is new, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's like... Usually, we like to believe that our candidates, say back in the Bill Clinton or, or Tony Blair era, you know, we like to believe that they're speaking the way they're speaking because they need to appeal to the sort of dumb common man. But we hope that deep down, wasn't that the whole thing with Al Gore too? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We but deep down we hope well they're actually a smart person. You know, whereas mm -hmm. Barack Obama kind of forces even those of us who uh, 
like to think of ourselves as high-minded, he forces us to rise to the occasion. You know, listening to one of his speeches isn't really the same sort of rabble-rousing that, you know, that we, we saw from, you know, Mussolini through Bush. You know, what it really is is uh, an appeal to our higher-mindedness, to our, our uh, you know, to our better natures and to yeah. our, our intellect. And that's kind of a challenge. It's a little bit like work. It's like watching, you know, public television in the U.S. You know, it's like, oh, I get it. You know, it's like reading The Guardian <laughs> instead of one of the, the Murdoch papers. Oh, yeah, tabloid, yeah. To kind of go back to the um, the question of civic responsibility, Douglas, did you happen to catch some of the interviews that they were doing um, on YouTube? They, I think that they had a, a live thing going on where you could actually uh, film yourself having a, you know, you would uh, give a question and then the candidates would respond live. Did yeah, you see but any of that? I saw some of that, but they were, um, well, the, the YouTube were, uh, those people were chosen, you know, they, they, oh, right. Okay. you know, so, CNN so you're saying that they whatever, were filtered, they were filtered. I mean, and they were, they were, they were filtered and ended up asking really the same questions that, that any decent journalist would ask, would ask. I mean, and the, the problem with that is that the, the, the town hall debate style or the public YouTube question debate style really doesn't allow trained journalists. And I'm not talking about some media conglomerate elite. I'm talking about right. trained journalists to ask the kinds of follow-up questions that we would think of the day later, but a great journalist. And I've seen them out there. I mean, these are people, I'm not saying they're smarter than you or me, but they're really good at that particular task, you know, which is okay. having the right follow-up right when the person kind of fails to answer. And you've seen even professional journalists that, you know, Bush or, or Clinton or even Obama can kind of give those answers that, that, don't, that don't really let you do a good follow-up unless you're really good at follow-ups. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay, so going back to what you were saying about what do we do with um, with this kind of uh, Obama thing, now we've got it. I mean, one thread I've noticed um, in your kind of throughout the discourse of your books is uh, the it's kind of, it's not an obvious thread at first, but when you read it, there's the thread of open source. You seem to be interested in kind of open source reality almost. And uh, what, you seem to also be leading back to, you know, when we were talking earlier about um, now Obama's in, what do we do with it? A kind of open source approach almost to the way government is run now maybe is that the sort of thing you'd like to see happen yeah i mean i would i really am um i'm always encouraged when people come to understand that the systems that we have in place are not pre-existing conditions but they are um invented institutions and not that we have to get rid of them but we have to understand that these were created by people that a lot more of the world we're living in is software than hardware and that the more that we understand that things are up for up for discussion the more we can challenge some of the fundamental assumptions that are being made um, particularly today you know with the economy you know the notion that you have to live in an economy that has certain kinds of growth rates or that capital works this way or money works that way or that people are going to be self-interested you know these are all you know assumptions about the way the world works that um, most of, I would argue, most of them aren't actually true, and uh, 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 someone like um, someone like Obama or this kind of movement coming in to uh, uh, coming into power 
is one that uh, I think is more willing to uh, to deconstruct some of the uh, uh, some of the models that we're using and uh, welcome alternatives. That's a basically uh, uh, what what we used to call the cyberpunk um, ethic. You know, that's uh, uh, you know the 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 idea that that uh, you know originally by having access to new technologies we could um, hack you know, the culture and the, the economy as it currently exists. Looking back, I mean, if you look back at Siberia, you can see the kind of uh, the influence of open source, your, you know, your views on open source reality and open source uh, hacking, as you called it just then. How would you say the culture or the landscape rather has changed from the era of Siberia up to now present day? Or has it well, at it's all? Gone, <laughs> it's gone back and forth a few times. I mean, what we're looking at really is, you know, what happened between, you know, uh, 1988 and 2008. Yeah, you know, over that 20 years, um, you know, what we saw was a generation in the in the you know late 80s, you know, really coming of age, um, and this was the so-called Generation X or the Slacker era, um, with the 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 collapse of an economy and top-down institutions, really the end of the Boomer era and these these these. You know, ideology-based uh, uh, movements and and themes and motivations being replaced by a much more kind of practical, bottom-up, uh, uh, realistic approach to the world. You know, that wasn't based in um, you know long-term uh, uh, you know climactic goals, but rather more short-term, what's going on here? What are we going to do about this? Um, and it, it, that generation ended up getting passed over, really, by the media and marketers because they seemed uh, – they were incomprehensible, this, this yeah. original Generation X. They couldn't be marketed to. They couldn't make them join things. I mean even though their rate of social volunteerism was the highest in history, they were thought of as apathetic, uninterested – uh, uh, you know, slackers. You know, they were just grunge people. And you know, when Kurt Cobain finally killed himself, it was okay. Good, these kids are gone now, and we can focus on Generation <laughs> Y and get them to do, uh, uh, you know, Pop Idol and and reality TV and all these. You know, uh, they can be be convinced to be marketed to. Um, but sort of behind the scenes, that same generation ended up creating. You know, Google and Netscape and Firefox and Apple and uh, uh, YouTube, you know, and Obama, you know, that these that this generation turned out um, to be kind of working behind the scenes to organize and and uh, build through these sort of bottom up, slow moving, less climax directed models. And, uh, and this turned out to be um, kind of surprisingly powerful, you know, that we have in Obama, we've got the first Gen X president, that that generation wasn't passed over, that it didn't move from Clinton, you know, down to um, uh, uh, Paris Hilton and, <laughs> and, her, and her crowd, that there turned out to be something in between. So, you know, we'll see just how far, um, how far that can work. 
Well, one thing I was interested in if you'd um, paid any, you know, if you'd noticed the whole anonymous movement online, the uh, you know the uh, sort of open source uh, activist group. I don't know if you can call them that, really, but uh, I was wondering if you if you had any thoughts on the way that went when they ended up actually protesting on the streets against the Church of Scientology. Or did you hear anything about this? Or um, that was in the UK, wasn't it? It was worldwide. Yeah, it was huge. <laughs> it was one of those things that kind of got passed away. Passed uh, a lot. Of, you know, the mainstream media didn't tend to really pick up on it until almost too late. You know, until it was almost over, <laughs> which is kind of typical of uh, you know open source culture in in that respect. But I was wondering. I mean, is that is this going to be the kind of the new future for um, things like online activism or hacktivism, as they're calling it now? Do you think it will be this kind of leaderless, bottom up kind of? Uh, organization rather than the kind of previous where you had like a kind of i guess a charismatic leader top down kind of uh yeah approach. i mean i hope so I, I mean this is really this kind of thing uh in our culture anyway began with the wto protests hmm. and uh it, it you know i guess the big one was in seattle you know before 9-11 happened and people still took to the streets and it was interesting to look at the way mainstream media covered it i was watching it on cnn and cnbc and you know the other uh, uh sort of mainstream networks, and they couldn't comprehend what was happening. They kept saying, well, this isn't a real protest, this isn't a real movement, because, look, those people have a sign about environmentalism, and these people have a sign about uh, sweatshop labor, and these people have a sign about, you know, uh, uh, World Bank policy. There's no movement here. This is all random. This is nothing. Hmm. You know, and what they couldn't get was that that a coalition of related movements is a real thing. And just because they don't have a single one-line protest slogan for CNBC to understand doesn't mean there isn't a coherent perspective that these people share, which is that you know globalism as being practiced by the World Bank and the IMF is not um, uh, is not productive. <laughs> that it's act, that it's destructive. And the fact that all these different groups can share this, the fact that you could see, you know, big labor, you know, marching arm to arm with with environmentalists um, is not is not an indication of a, a lack of coherence, that it's that it's it's the opposite, that it's a good um, old fashioned mass movement of people who are intelligent enough to understand that their interests are allied, that the, the, the time-tested tra- tra- tradition of creating very separated special interest groups in order to disempower um, you know, the, the, the public um, against uh, centralized authoritarian um, interest, interest groups um, is obsolete, that it's not going to work anymore. Um, so in the in the anonymous movement and, and this style of bottom up internet based uh, social activism, um, especially when it returns to terra firma, when they actually go outside and hold signs and do things in you know Los Angeles and London and New York simultaneously, um, you start to see uh, um, well you're 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 able to rather than just create the illusion of angry people you're uh, you're able to exhibit the reality of uh support for for new ideas and and for a kind of change that i don't think um the 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 political sector and the uh, corporate sector have really seen for a long long time 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, another obviously uh, another thing that seems to have exploded really in the last ten years more than ever, I'd say, um, is the kind of conspiracy culture online, and that seems to be a kind of similar approach. Would you agree with that? You know, this kind of conspiracy culture is kind of uh, emerged uh, obviously post nine eleven. But um, is this something that can you see any kind of cause for the the sudden rise in conspiracy mass conspiracy yeah. culture? I mean, I think uh, ultimately, I think conspiracy culture. Um, arises from people's inability to uh, attribute so much of what's happening to systemic causes. You know, I I, I think most conspiracy culture is actually um, bad for um, bad for the cause of agency rather than uh, a net positive. Um, and it's because it can distract us from the problems that are so above ground. In other words, looking for the way that, you know, dynamite might have been put in the World Trade Center distracts us from the way that American uh, policy, um, your oil policy or Afghanistan policy or collusion with Osama bin Laden um, might have been much more directly responsible for what happened. In other words, you don't, by the time you're looking for ways in which, you know, 300 bodies of people were murdered and hidden because they weren't really on the planes, you end up marginalizing a very coherent set of questions about what really happened. Yeah. So, um, you know, and it's because there's, I think, a psychological need to believe that Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and these people are much more powerful and much more in charge than they really are. Because if you were to really look at the the level of incompetence, um, you know, they're no less competent than the people running General Motors say, but that's pretty darn incompetent, you know, that that's actually more frightening for people Mm. than to believe that there is a master planner still in charge of the universe. You know, it's, it's much more comforting to believe in an enemy up there than a clown. Yeah, I and mean, that's pretty much what Robert Anton Wilson kind of believed as well, to a degree. I mean, yeah. he couldn't, but he couldn't um, believe in some. I remember reading an interview of him where he said he just couldn't believe the way that some of the stuff he came up with that was so obviously just made up in his books had been taken as fact and kind of translated across <laughs> onto this kind of uh, you know reality <laughs> created by these conspiracy theorists. It was quite interesting, right? I mean, it's what happened. It's like the original protocols of the elders of Zion. Yeah, yeah. Um, originally started as satire. You know, it was supposed to be funny. I mean, biting, but but funny. Mm. Um, and then it got picked up by this, uh, 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 you know, some uh, some Russian guy as, oh, let's use this as as if it were a factual, uh, uh, you know, as as if it were real. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of what happens. And I think he he, um, on the some sense, in some sense, like all of us, tend to underestimate um, how gripped by fear people are. And how how much they really need parents, how much they they want to believe that there's someone in charge of what's going on. Hmm. Yeah, I think just going away from that for a second. There's one 
in your uh, documentary, The Persuaders, and I think the book is Coercion, I think it's the book, um, right. you highlight kind of advertising agencies and you use the phrase breaking through the clutter. I've always been interested in, um, I mean, that was a while ago now that the book was written and the documentary is made. Is there any, I mean, after this, how did these advertising agencies manage to break through the clutter? <laughs> um, yeah, to some extent. I mean, I mean, advertising itself doesn't really work. Um, <laughs> and it really doesn't. I mean, and Google will find this out in a, in a dark way if they haven't come up with another revenue model. Mm. Um, even they will be in trouble. People certainly consume, and they want to consume. And advertising does function to make people want more total stuff. But it's it's very hard for advertising to be directed towards particular things. In other words, it, it the sum total of all of living in an advertising based culture makes us all more consumerist. But it ends up being more a collective effort on the advertiser's part rather than a specific technique for selling their stuff over someone else's stuff. You know, the internet is part of what revealed this. Mm. You know, the, these technologies are part of what showed the um, inability of advertisers to connect a certain campaign with a rise or a fall in sales. And the more disjointed those got in a bottom-up media space, um, the harder it was for, you know, top-down uh, marketers to justify their advertising expenses. Mm -hmm. But by going online, they end up decentralizing a lot of their um, a lot of their power. You know, then they come into this weird consumer education space where we're trading information on Engadget or Boing Boing about what works and what doesn't. And that's not an advertising friendly um, environment. It's a it's a, uh, a product attribute friendly environment. It's where what does this thing do? Does it work? How much juice does it use? Does it use sweatshops or not? Is it poison or not? I mean where where it's much more information based. So it's 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 tricky on that level. You know, I, I just did this talk in the UK for something called Ofcom, which is sort of like the uh um it's a private company but they're they're an agency that does uh, regulation. And these the people who were there were like the head of Vivendi and the head of British Telecom and all the really giant media conglomerates. And I was there to really tell them that they're, they're at a crossroads. You know, Their companies have been used as the names on debt for the last 10 or 20 years. Vivendi is not a media company. It's the name on a media story that's being used to raise money on the stock exchange. The same with all of these companies. Only the story that they've been pushing – this bottom-up decentralized internet, that's actually empowering the opposite of their shareholders. You know, this story is now empowering uh, the creation of value from the outside in, from decentralized sources. Mm -hmm. And that's what's led to the economic crash, that, that we, don't, we no longer need these big stockpiles of centralized capital in order to conduct our affairs. You know, we have other ways of doing stuff. And um, that's really the threat. And they've got to look at, well, now, do they want to keep making media and technology that supports the decentralization of value creation that's been really a, a, a one-way trip for the last 400 years? Or do they want, to, they want to take this back, you know, somehow and support these, uh, uh, you know, these, these capitalists who are really 
their their real customers rather than us. Hmm. Yeah, I think one of the um, ways that they tried to kind of, I guess, break through the clutter, as you call it, um, was uh, through viral marketing. That was a real big buzz phrase a few years ago. And obviously, I think you were kind of partially uh, the creator of that phrase in some ways. And I don't yeah, think... I don't no, think... It, was, it was kind of odd. I mean, hmm. you know, you look at the way viral marketing, you know, or, or what I called, you know, viral media became viral marketing or hmm. the way, you know, uh, open source became crowdsourcing. You know, that really what people like, um, say, like make Malcolm Gladwell, you know, and, and uh, uh, um, gosh, any of these sort of internet markety places or, or uh, Faith Popcorn and, and these folks do is recontextualize this, this bottom-up threat as corporate friendly phenomena you know oh don't worry about open source they're not going to open your your they're not going to open your your business model or your technology and change it it's actually crowdsourcing it's a way for you to exploit all of this free labor you know for your corporate agenda mm. but don't worry there's no real viral media genuine contagion you know what it is 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 a, a viral marketing. It's a way for people to share, you know, your brand image with each other through the internet and make you more money. Um, but in the end, these are are well, what the, what they are is is sort of music to fascist ears. You mm. know, it's saying, don't worry about how big this looks. It's all ultimately, uh, you know, in support of the spectacle. You know, and it's not deconstructing the spectacle. And I think that the current economic crisis is really evidence that they were wrong, that it is deconstructing the spectacle, that mm. this hype-based um, hype based form of commerce, this very specific um, corporate libertarian uh, uh, model of the market no longer works um, when – people have seized the tools for value creation. You know, it was based on extracting value from people rather than allowing people to create value. And that could only work so long before there's no more value to be extracted. I mean, one thing that kind of almost amuses me is that uh, certain companies think that they can just, you know, they can create a viral marketing campaign by kind of just, you know, creating some kind of wacky videos and throwing them on YouTube and all of a sudden everyone's going to buy their products. I mean, it's kind of weird that they haven't learned that lesson yet because you still see it. I mean, all the time, it's kind of weird. Well, yeah, I mean, they won't learn that lesson, I mean, for, for a long, long time. And I mean, I think there, there can be an ecology of, of multiple economic models where you do have corporations and central bankers, you know, doing top-down uh, uh, production of, you know, big things, you know, airplanes and and bridges, you know, sort of capital intensive projects. But um, that doesn't work well for agriculture or education or, uh, you, you know, uh, clothing and shoes. You know, it turns out that a lot of that stuff works better not mass produced and shipped for thousands of miles in shipping containers, but actually made locally by people um, at sustainable rates rather than uh, ever expanding rates. And it's it's going to be really really hard to get you know ninety percent of our of our uh, of our uh, you know agricultural land 
back in the hand of farmers and out of big agra, that's going to be big and painful. And, and probably the biggest, um, a bigger challenge than our energy challenge. Mm. And the one that will actually um, kill us if we can't. Um, if we can't do it, you know, we can really lose our oil and energy and and figure it out. We can actually get by. Yes. Um, it's it's our land. If we can't get our land back um, before we totally destroy it with, you know, whatever genetic crap that we're sticking on it, um, yeah. then we're then we're more screwed. I mean, you know, you... I don't want to be depending on, you know, whoever it is, Biogen Corp, you know, to <laughs> Monsanto grow. and all that. Yeah, to grow my my wheat on the ocean, you know, because by the time they're working that one out, um, we are just so screwed. It's not funny. I mean, you recently recently did a uh, lecture at the Alfred Korzybski uh, memorial <laughs> thing. Yeah, um, it, it seems, you know, your message was quite optimistic, and uh, you know, I really enjoyed it, and rightly so. However, given the state of the current uh, economy, I mean. How do you honestly forecast the way things are going to turn out? Uh, I mean, do you foresee collapse occurring before things improve, or can we actually intervene with a better model uh, before it's too late? I see some people um, working on alternative models in the midst of this. I mean, and and I mean, these are folks who are kind of like my friends, and we've been working on some of these for the last ten years or so, um, and others have been working on them even before. Um, so I, I do see those projects gaining more steam and getting more credibility you know as uh the the as the other economic model uh crumbles around us yeah. um but i mean we live in america anyway when the when the first depression happened 90% of people were connected in some way to the the production of their own food they were connected to the land in some way now only 10% of people are connected to the land in some way so you know we have a society in which 90% of us are dependent on the supermarket big agra and long distance uh food transport yeah this live. is a major it's a major it, problem isn't it it is and and the transition from one to the other is much much more challenging than it was than it was at that time. So um, I'm a little bit less hopeful. Um, I don't generally talk like this because I feel like it's partly my job to cheerlead the alternative model. <laughs> yeah, optimistic. Um, yeah, but I do, um, I do see our ability to navigate and negotiate. This I mean, have you seen in other cities yeah. anywhere where um, I don't know where they they do uh, eat more locally? I guess there are, there are communities where they they do grow their own food, and um, I mean, there's even one close to where I live. So I was wondering if you've noticed any big trends in that anywhere? Portland or somewhere? Where are you? Yeah, um, actually, I'm in Roanoke, Virginia. It's pretty small, but uh, but oh. out in this this kind of hippie-ish town in Floyd, you can really you can grow your own food and um, you can bring so much back yeah. with you. It's amazing. I mean, it's not bad. I was wondering if I, if you've noticed in other towns, maybe like uh, maybe San Francisco or somewhere, if they, they eat more locally or if they have plans for that kind of thing. Because yeah, I, mean, I think Portland, that there's a rising awareness in this problem. There is a rising awareness, and there are CSAs. I mean, the problem is now the community-sponsored agriculture is limited by the law in terms of what they can grow and where. 
you know, they are, they, it can't get more fields because the fields have been set aside for corn subsidy by big agra. So even if right. they rent the fields, they can't grow anything but corn there or not corn there. Um, so, so there, it's really these, these tremendous legal restrictions that even though I think now public interest in CSA, community-sponsored agriculture and local farming, can grow, our land use policies are tilted against taking this back. And certainly, okay, yeah. I mean, cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, really do depend on thousands and thousands of acres of surrounding farmland that have to be exploited. And you've got to use trucks and bring stuff in. Um, but even that agriculture can be, um, you know, returned to uh, farmers' hands rather than this kind of big, big agri-sharecropping, whatever um, uh, system that goes on. Um, but I, I'm, I'm pessimistic about our ability um, to do it. And I do see the kinds of, uh, uh, I do see sort of some starvation, some, some local starvation ahead um, before we, uh, before we're able to rest ourselves from that and some, you know, extreme dependency on, on, you know, government cheese and stuff, you know, <laughs> lining up behind big trucks right. you know, to get food. No, I mean, I do, I do see progressive cities working some of this out um, in really positive ways, but I don't, I don't see that many of them. I don't see, you know, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Detroit, uh, New York, um, looking at that, you know, looking at that yet. And I don't think they will until people go to the A&P and see, oh, there's no food on the shelves of this A&P because A&P was unable to buy the food because they were unable to secure capital from Citibank to do their basic, uh, uh, you know, stocking of the shelves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one part of your lectures that kind of uh, always interests me is when you express the kind of economy as a non-fixed uh, thing, you know, in, in quotes there. I've always kind of felt alongside religion, the economy is kind of the most powerful globally shared belief system. And I guess I guess my question is, like, what would happen if people stopped believing in the economy? <laughs> um, well, it's, it's, it would be a good thing because we don't have – the economy that we're in is not the economy. It's an economic model that was put in place 400 years ago to support the interests of chartered corporations and the monarchs who were profiting off them. Mm. It was a way of really preventing capitalism from happening and from and and to promoting a very particular kind of closed and regulated market. So if people stopped believing in this, it's not a bad thing, but a good thing because it means that they can see that oh, I get it. There's all these different kinds of economic models we could be using. There's all these kinds of ways we could be developing and creating uh, uh, currencies that we use. There's all different ways to generate value that don't have to be run through some central authority in order to exist. Hmm. You know, and there's other ways we could have built a society. So losing faith in the markets as they're currently constructed is not a bad thing. Hmm. You know, it's really a matter of seeing that, oh, this is one way of doing things. This is one kind of money. And it turns out that there are all these other kinds of monies that were made illegal. There's all these other ways of transacting that were declared illegal a couple of hundred years ago and that really need to be um, reintroduced 
in order for us to develop a sustainable rather than a growth-based um, society. Yeah, I think one of those examples was, uh, I think the one you use is a local currency. Yeah. Yeah, that's... You know, and that's, that's a biggie. I mean, and we're seeing them develop all over the place um, because regular money just became too scarce and too expensive for, uh, for you know, most businesses to get. And for, for, for it's no longer a suitable means of exchange. It's great for long-distance uh, uh, transactions, but it's really bad for local transactions. It's biased towards sucking resources and, and value out of communities and um, storing them in banks. Yeah. I've, well, se- I've seen a lot of uh, local sort of uh, businessmen in my community. Uh, that, that kind of thing t- tends to go on already. You know, it's uh, a plumber might do some work for, you know, a, a guy who's an electrician, you know, that kind of thing. Um, oh, yeah, basic barter. I mean, and yeah. right now, you know, barter has increased just in the month of October. It increased, I think, by 60% in the U.S. Really? There are these barter networks online where businesses that no longer have cash can sell merchandise or they can put it into a pool in order to take something else out of the pool. And everyone does it at the sort of standard market rate value for their uh, for their stuff. So, you know, a paper company might put, you know, 20,000 reams of paper into this thing in order to get, you know, the oil they need to, you know, to run their machines. So you just, you're starting to see a lot of that because they can't get the capital from the bank to do this. So why should they trade bank capital when they can just trade directly? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's good. One thing I was going to ask you about actually was in an old lecture of yours I've got, you talk about the kind of, you can compare the capital R renaissance with the kind of renaissance of the internet. I was wondering mm. if you uh, have ever thought about what the next renaissance might be, or if there's any way, you know, a predictive model for that in any way. Well, I mean, the predictive model would be, I mean, the next renaissance would happen in 100 or 200 years from now. Mm. I mean, at least a, you figure even if things are speeding up a lot, if these two are 400 years apart, you figure the next one could happen. It's got to be at least 50 or 100 years away. It's yeah, like yeah. things don't accelerate quite that much. No. So, I mean, if the last one, the original Renaissance, was about, the, was about centralization, you know, we got centralized currency and the printing press and, and, uh, all of, and, and the nation state, lots of top-down centralized institutions emerged, um, you know, central currency. Um, in this one, we got uh, the one that we're in now, we got decentralized media like the Internet, um, you know, decentralized possibilities for governance through, you know, bottom up organization, you know, and wiki and 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 uh, uh, fractals and, you know, DIY culture and, and a return towards local value creation. Um, if we got all that, then you would figure the next renaissance would be um, a recentralization, but at a higher level, you know, it would be um, a a a. Uh, a new form of central organization that now accepts um, the 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 marriage of the original centralized uh, uh, individualistic uh, uh, you know outside in um, model of of society with this one, which is this very decentralized one, into one that I would I would hope accepts both. You know, the, and and accepts both as as uh, uh, compatible and uh, 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 complementary uh, schools of thought rather than um, competitive ones. Mm. All right. Well, an- another thing I was kind of interested in talking to you about was uh, the, 
the internet it seems to be you know the it's always the, the central focus now of of any kind of emerging media or even the kind of old-fashioned media i mean especially as it's now it's pretty much gone mobile now the internet you mean an iphone can pretty decently look at the internet and uh, google's phone and do you see that the internet's now going to is it going to destroy things like uh like hard copy publishing or um uh, you know, like the books and magazine industries, for example, PC Magazine, one of the oh, right, biggest. The Kindle. Yeah, I mean, like I said, PC Magazine just recently announced it wasn't going to be like printing any more issues, and that's quite a big deal. I mean, I, I'm not a reader of it, but I know it's a really quite big magazine, and it has been for a long time. Do you think that it's going to be harder for magazines, people that want to pr- produce these kind of hard copy magazines, to compete with the internet as it becomes more and more user friendly? Yeah, I mean, for sure. It doesn't mean that it'll go away, but it means that um, it's going to have to justify itself. So, I mean, there's there's more being printed and than, than we need, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's already more being printed than we need. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll, there, I mean, I'll look at uh, my next book. My next book was done in July of this year. So my last book was really done four or five months ago. Mm. And now they're saying it can't come out till July 28th of next year. Wow. You know, like eight months from now. Hmm. Um, well, that's frustrating. And I could post the PDF of the book now. Hmm. I could stick it up today. So partly this is due to the way corporations work and the, they paid me for this book and I've got to wait till they're ready. But partly it's because they got to get a printing press and they've got to distribute all this stuff. And the model they have to ship around all this stuff is slow and old. So, um, I think that I, as an author actually could have made more money putting this thing up and asking people for two bucks a pop then waiting till July when God knows if this stuff is going to be relevant or obsolete and um, letting them charge 20 bucks for it. So how do you feel about the creative commons license? Great. I mean, I'm, I would do, I would put everything I've written on the creative commons license. You know, my only mm-hmm. obstacle to it is uh, my publishers think that it's, it's bad for them when it's actually um, good for them. I think it was a great idea. I mean, and I think you don't even have to use it if you don't want. That's the thing. It's not like yeah, being four exactly. means everything has to be on it. It's like, go go copyright it in an old-fashioned way. Make people pay if that's the way you want to do it. And that's not bad, you know. That's fine. Hmm. You know, I don't – there's certain things I wouldn't want. You know, I don't want a creative commons, you know, my, my daughter's face or something. <laughs> you know, that's her. I don't get fair use to that. One thing I've noticed that the internet may be doing in a way is kind of filtering out a lot of the kind of – I don't know, kind of crappy magazines that you can get out there. And uh, they seem to be kind of making the more niche magazines more popular in a, in a certain way. I know in, in the UK, we have a magazine here called Rock and Roll, Rock and Roll, Rock and Roller, I think it's called, which is kind of like and completely focused on underground music and kind of niche music. And that uh-huh. seems to be even more popular now because of the internet. It's kind of strange, where the, whereas these kind of great big giant magazines we have here, like Kerrang, that look at kind of like mainstream heavy metal and all this kind of stuff, seem to be really suffering. Now, do you have any idea why that's happening? Well, yeah. I mean, the, you want to have something in your hands that comes from a culture or a place that that you uh, have a that you have or you, that you want a connection with. You know, I don't need a connection 
with Time magazine. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I don't feel anything, but I, but the more like a zine it is, the more it comes out of uh, uh, some cottage industry. You know, the more it's it's of a place or a world, the more I want that physical souvenir. Mm. You know, um, that thing from there. Um, so even you know, oddly enough, even a Make magazine, um, which is uh, uh, largely about technology and internet things, you want the physical. Uh, the physicality of that because it connects you to that culture. You walk around with it. People see you with it. It's a badge of your, um, uh, of your membership in, you know, in a world. And that's, uh, that feels good. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, another thing you work with, I mean, you, you don't just publish books, but you also you're involved with the comic industry as well. And you've recently finished a series called Testament. Is there any, um, right. How is that, uh, how does that differ to the kind of the book publishing world? I can imagine it's quite a different kind of environment to be a part of. Yeah. I mean, there are, uh, 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 I mean, there's similarities that the, the big difference in uh, the comics world is that um, the writers are really nice to each other. <laughs> you know, the, the book world, particularly the nonfiction book world um, feels a little bit like an intellectual Las Vegas <laughs> where people are, are, trying out ideas on each other um, and then racing to get them published first. I mean, I don't feel like it's a collaborative community. And and it feels as if our debates um, about issues are much too closely tied to our sales as authors. Mm. You know, the one who wins gets the most book sales. Um, where... I feel in the comics world that we are part of a, a, a mythological heritage, you know, that we are building the metaverse together, you know, that we are, you know, that we're working together on the shared and overlapping mythologies hmm. of our culture. And, you know, when I come up with an idea for, um, I came up with an idea for a, a Superman, one of those, uh, uh, you know, a four, a four part, you know, Superman story about basically Superman versus Deepak Chopra, you know, that there's this, you know, that there's this guy, I mean, he would be, you know, um, more, uh, more of a sort of, uh, uh, self-improvement charlatan that's giving everybody out there, you know, the, um, uh, sort of magical abilities that Superman has while draining Superman's and, um, you know, I had these ideas for it. And, you know, I'm at this party with a bunch of uh, uh, comic guys and they all start contributing to the idea. Oh, then have them do this and have them do that. No, no, it shouldn't be three parts. It should be four. So the fourth one can do this. They're not <laughs> looking for credit or a handout or anything. They're actually sharing ideas because in comics they realize there is a bounty of ideas. There's more ideas than any of us are ever going to have time to put in comics. Mm. Whereas – in the sort of book world, it feels as if these are kind of a lot of them are sort of dried up uh, magazine writers, that there's a, a dearth of ideas, that there's not this sense of bounty. And the reason there's a dearth of ideas is because people are scared to share their ideas. It's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because they're not collaborating and cross-fertilizing. There's this sense that, you know, writers are sitting alone trying to squeeze ideas out of their butt. <laughs> and uh, and make all this money off them, 
and and that leads to this very sterile, boring, uh, you know, uh, culture. So so I think that's I think so it's that's more a of a problem. competition sort of thing. It is, and less of a collaboration sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've obviously done some work on, uh, you've written a book about Judaism. Was was writing Testament kind of a natural kind of space for you to go into in the comic world? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I thought it was the long shot of all the things I pitched to them, but it was the one that they ended up um, liking the best. And it was a good way to, um, well, it was a good way to, to kind of exhaust, you know, the years of research I did for that book. I mean, I did, you know, a lot of deep, deep mining into uh, Torah and, and Jewish lore over, you know, over, over about a decade or so mm. of, of reading that um, ended up being largely rejected by the Jewish establishment um, when my book came out because um, the Jewish establishment is mostly about sort of defending Israel or, or defending a certain view of Israel. And this kind of inquiry is is seen as superfluous to that and thus destructive to that. I mean, it's not that anything I said in my book was was anti-Israel, but it's like, no, you don't want Jews' work talking about the open source tradition or Midrash right now. Jews should be working on the big problems, which is intermarriage and getting people to join temples and supporting Israel. So the the, the whole notion of this sort of open source inquiry into Judaism and this sort of deep look and turning over what is you know, what is Torah really saying? What's going on in there? Who were these patriarchs and what were they about? Was sort of seen as superfluous. Hmm. And so the whole book was pretty much rejected as, as, uh, you know, uh, unnecessary or, or, or wrong. (laughs) And, um, the comic book gave me a chance to really communicate with a different audience about, you know, look at what's going on in these stories. Look at, you know, all of the kind of the, the, I mean, on the one hand, the sex magic and the empowerment and the DIY open source, let's write our own laws. Let's fight the fascist worldview of the pharaoh with a new worldview of, of bottom-up participatory um, democracy and world creation. Um, and showing where the evidence for that, why, if you, if you actually read Torah or Bible, why you might well come up with that rather than this uh, a thing that the so-called Bible thumpers um, come up with instead. You end up well, with a really, I think, a radical take on the world, not a conservative one. Plus it's very relevant to today's society as well, I think. You know? Right. Yeah, well, I tried to marry it to this whole, you know, monopoly of currency idea. You know, you can really look at Torah as the story of how, um, you know, this guy Joseph <coughs> went, to the Pharaoh, went to Pharaoh and taught him how to um, how to exploit the scarcity model of currency. You know, yeah. seven years of feast, seven years of famine, and this is how it's going to work. Everyone's going to be indebted to you, and you will be in charge of the universe. And then realizing, oh, my gosh, that was a really bad thing to teach a dictator how to do because look what it led to. Um, so that, you know, all the Israelites escape and develop an alternative culture. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a pretty straightforward view of what is there, but a view that most people really um, – haven't engaged with or haven't considered. And comics are a great place to say what if um, and to do that what if under the radar rather than um, in this sort of top-down, New York Times, please review my book, um, <laughs> review my assertions um, world because New York Times is not going to review that assertion. It's just it's too – to them it's like 
say what? You know, it's just <laughs> like saying, you know, like I tried to back in 1991. Oh, there's this thing called the Internet that's coming and we're all going to be using it someday. You know, the New York Times is not the place to have them consider whether the Internet's really going to happen or not. Certain places online, I've noticed that you, at one point at least, seem to have an interest in, in an interest in the occult. And I was wondering, uh, did you study this in some respect, or what was your kind of what was your interest in the occult? I don't know. I guess my, I mean, when I was a little kid, um, like nine or ten, there was the series. It was in the grocery store called Man, Myth, and Magic. Did you guys have that over there? Yeah, I think <laughs> was, we did. Yeah. It was this weird magazine. I mean, and that was coming out around the same time that these movies like um, Chariots of the Gods and uh, and people were like sitting in pyramids and putting their fruit in pyramids to keep it fresh. It was like this super early New Age movement. And um, there was this guy, Hans Holzer, who was like a, a ghost hunter. And he used to go into houses and he would talk on the radio about these uh, ghost hunting things. So that was my main interest as a little kid. And like my, my Hebrew school teacher gave me tarot cards. Mm. And that was kind of fun. Um, Can you still read them? And, yeah, yeah. And I did a program actually way later called Cyber Tarot, which um, might still work. It's, it's, uh, it's just they keep changing the system. So the programs go obsolete. But um, I was interested, you know, so I was a kid in that kind of stuff and Ouija boards and things. But um, it really wasn't until. Um, a lot of the people who are interested in the cyberpunk and the psychedelics and the, the, the kinds of cultural phenomenon I was interested in, you know, rave culture and Terrence McKenna and Timothy Leary were also interested in Aleister Crowley and, and, and occult culture. Um, and I generally, I'm not because I'm, I'm more of a of a traditional Jew in that sense. I'm kind of text only. Let's do what we really understand before we start getting everybody, you know, stoned and doing stuff we don't understand. <laughs> you know, the real world is tricky enough. Um, but um, I, I'm interested in it because so many people are, and because I really do look at Aleister Crowley and and most magic as forms of, of um, you know, general semantics or neurolinguistic programming or self-hypnosis of, of um, I am interested in, in our ability to reprogram ourselves and our world. Mm. And your book, I do Stone Free, that you wrote in, sorry to interrupt, uh, your book from, um, from, I think, 1995 that you wrote with Patrick Wells on how to get high without drugs, I found really interesting. Do you um do you still are you still into that kind of thing or um I mean do you still are you still occupied with I guess consciousness change and such? Um, it was interesting. I wrote that book. It was actually that book was originally in like nineteen eighty eight or eighty nine, and oh, then sorry. we okay. published it with something else. Um, yeah, that was a weird situation. He was a guy who was really into all that stuff, and said he'd give me ten thousand bucks if I wrote this book. That was his idea. So then I went oh, okay. and researched it all, and I wrote this book. Um, on like everything from like mind machines and mandalas and meditation. The reason right, I was interested in that, yeah, was because um, I felt like the war on drugs was more a war on consciousness than a war on chemicals. And that if people had the ability to reach these states of consciousness without the chemicals, then what are they going to do? Are they going to make meditation illegal? Are they going to make, you know, holotropic breathing illegal? You know, how do you do that? 
Um, so I thought, like, let's get it out there. Let's get these um, these sort of mind-altering technologies out there so people can can do it themselves. Um, I mean, I'm not busy spending my time doing these things because I feel like I'm kind of uh, I feel like I'm kind of altered as it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think you know there's certain ways that you can alter your consciousness that you don't really come back. It's just that that different state of being becomes the normal one, you know, and you sort of just get used to it. Yeah. Um, and I think I think I'm kind of there. So it's not like I'm stoned. Stoned is really just the change. You know, stoned is the difference. But once that difference is the new normal, you're not stoned anymore. You're just, I think, constantly seeing the 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 pretext of uh, or the, the 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 presumptions, the underlying presumptions of what's going on, um, and you just don't see them quite as real anymore. It's like, okay, this is the you know, it's just like, okay, now we're at a formal event. So what does that mean? Now we're wearing ties. Now we're acting like this. Now we use our fork like this rather than like we do at home because this is a formal event. Okay, now we're with our friends. So we use this language and we say fuck a lot and we eat with our hands this way and we try to pick up this girl and it's like, okay, because that's, you know, and you realize, okay, I'm not just maintaining in this, I'm maintaining in every situation. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, that's, that's, these are my different public selves and I'm going to put them on and it's just a little bit more deliberate and conscious than it is when you're not in the, in the, you know, what people would normally call the stoned state. It's just, um, it's social convention. It's, it's game, it's costume. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's okay. You know, that's just, uh, um, but I don't, I don't really see the need I'm not anti-drug or anything, but I don't see the need. It's sort of like, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Alan Watts used to say, like, once you get the message, hang up the phone. <laughs> you know, I do think I could, I could benefit yeah. from, from meditation and relaxation techniques and centering and stuff. I haven't really been able to find the time to do since I had a child because um, I'm sort of constantly on. Um, and when I'm not on for her, I'm just working. So uh, I, I do think I could use uh, some centering, and that and that you know some of those kinds of techniques are in that are in that first book. But most of those techniques are pretty obvious. You know, hmm. spend time in nature. Um, you know, you know, make clay pots. You know, just do do simple things with your hands. <laughs> you know. I think a lot of it's observation, really. It's just kind yeah. of paying attention, you know. Yeah, yeah, but it's hard to do sometimes in the in the workaday reality. Yeah. Well, before we let you go back to your daughter, um, uh, what what are you actually working on at the moment? You were talking about a book. Could you tell us anything about that new book? Or yeah, I mean, I'm just basically finished a book called Life Incorporated that's going to come out in uh, in the U.S. and the U.K. at some point in the summer. Um, and maybe I can sneak out the electronic version tonight. Um, <laughs> before, before collapse occurs. Yeah, exactly. Collapse occurs. Or the collapse has occurred. It's just a matter of how far down we're going to go. But um, well, we still have an internet, right? Um, and that's really looking at how we got here. You know, the fact that, that the world we're living in is an economy, that, that life itself has been 
incorporated into a business plan that we now take for granted. And, and I really look at the process through which that business plan became um, accepted conventional reality and how to um, reconnect to one another and to the land and to commerce um, in a way that can, can restore um, a, a large portion of human agency that's been really systematically um, uh, removed from the equation. Excellent. All right, that sounds that sounds really interesting. Have you ever thought about maybe, um, oh, have you ever considered rather um, kind of going back to maybe looking at kind of cultures again, or, or are you kind of uh, kind of done with that now? Well, what what are cultures? No, as in like kind of like oh, I guess kind of emerging maybe subcultures then. Yeah, I mean, I think I do that in the second half of this book. Ah, okay. You know, I look at sort of bottom up cultures from make and local currencies and you know things like that who's doing that um it's harder to write books about specific subcultures now than it used to be because you know books basically take a year to come out after you've written them Mm. and subcultures have much faster turnover now than they did back when yeah you know when i wrote siberia um in you know 19 originally like 88 through 91 um in 1991, my publisher canceled the book because they thought that the internet culture would be over by the time the book came out in 1992. <laughs> you know, that's that's the way they thought things worked, uh, and and obviously it turned out to be too early. You know, if that book had come out in 95, 96, it probably would have sold a lot more copies because people would have been like, "What the hell is this stuff that's all around us now?" Hmm. Um, but uh, now it's like you can't really. Uh, well, I guess you can, but it's it's hard to find a culture that that is that on the ground and that isn't going to grow significantly before you've had a chance to cover it. I mean, I'm very interested in the make culture, you know, the 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 make and craft and mm. and you know, and sort of starts with Burning Man and ends with uh, you know Make Magazine, um, you know, and where where is all that happening and how are people creating value for themselves and trading and sharing. I think that's that's a real thing. It's not quite as sexy as, you know, hanging out, you know, doing DMT with people on a, you know, in a in a garage in Oakland, but it's it's still, you know, it's still real and deserves to be uh, and deserves to be chronicled. Okay, well, I think I speak from everyone saying we're really big fans, and we really appreciate uh, oh, you giving us some of your time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. these are the podcast turned out to be is the is the seems to be the medium of the day. I think more people are listening to them than than certainly than reading my books. So thanks <laughs> for the chance to uh, to to reach people this way. All right, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thanks, Doug. All thanks, right, have a good Take day. Bye bye. Opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes. So keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. Daddy Tank.
Welcome to installment three of MySpace Heroes. Tonight, Babies in a Wood Chipper by Babies in a Wood Chipper. Kiss Yourself by Clam. Mama the Rubber by Made for Chickens by Robots. Killing My SA2 by The Battery Davis. And Circuitry Nursery by Zeno Bathroom. If you enjoy the music, go and congratulate them. Our job well done.
want you to be Instead of being who you are Make an appointment with your reflection Kiss yourself on the regular
Bars, militant, sweat, these black art, vegetarian, I tie on American, eyeball looking at chakras, Islam, zillative, doctors, Jews, drums, to run sickness out the door quickly, we run slickness out the bowl strictly, so come witness how we hold victory, the dub hits with power, soul history, the club shifts cause now you roll with me, it uplifts the dial with bold crispy, jumping, I say oh yes, something, always go for his ghetto, info must impress, praying African circle, tree nursery, perfectly work to beat up, tempo strap, tempo much, gusto, trifle, psycho, retro, stress flow, future features to the creatures, dense dance, melody molecule, tense trance, elephants follow to advance, African rock to new hot pants, at the gym shocking you, this word bird is a cockatoo, too cocky, black or crew, tactful Nubian, urban bush, kush, kush, African speed is fast enough, take you beyond the atmosphere, blacks was here, rats from here, magical deeds and jazzy stuff, breaking through we in the stratosphere, Afrosphere, have no fear, 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 fear. Light on, right on, brother, sister, black on, black, sideways, snake crawl to the ASP, subtle, bubble, set on, head on, dread on, get on, down, sound, pound, crown, bound, to the, the booty bounce, to the beauty sound, in the city, bump, data, carnival, diabetes, jump, at an audible, known, tone, zone, drone, home, song, blown, on, drone, then, bone, then, grown, then, don't, then, on the sun, always from some super drum, phenomenal choreography, incredible, some reality, impeccable, black technology, the syllables, volley, balancely, the originals, we are sonically, original, star ecology, from hither, with other weak hearts, speak parts of ancient sentient, brains and infinite, gloomy jubilee tunes, they musically sculpted, rock head, pool pit, cha-cha church. Brain African circuit, your nursery perfectly worked to beat up, dup, dup, dup. Brain African circuit, your nursery perfectly worked to beat up. African speed is fast enough, taking you beyond the atmosphere. Blacksmiths here, rats from here, magical deeds and jazzy stuff. Breaking through, we in the stratosphere. Afrosphere, have no fear, taking you beyond the atmosphere. African speed is fast enough, blacksmiths here, rats from here, magical deeds and jazzy stuff. Breaking through, we in the stratosphere. Afrosphere, have no fear, magical deeds and jazzy stuff. Taking you beyond the atmosphere. Blacksmiths here, rats from here, African speed is fast enough, breaking through, we in the stratosphere, Afrosphere, have no fear.
and thanks to Daddy Tank for that. Um, that's once again a, a great MySpace Heroes. Um, keep up the good work there, uh, DT. <laughs> I hate using stuff like that. But anyway, um, right. So uh, that was Douglas Trushko. How do you feel the uh, interview went, guys? Oh, I enjoyed it totally. Yeah, he's a very interesting character. Like I said, he, he kind of puts you to shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's definitely got a, quite a wise opinion on everything. As the you know, he's, he seems to be a have his finger always on the pulse of not just one thing but everything yeah absolutely i mean he had so many things to talk about i mean from agriculture to you know from cyber culture everything it's he's got a really good hand on um i guess today's uh what's going on have, in the world it's amazing they should have him as an advisor in the white house or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> i agree be... i mean supposedly he's been offered a lot of big positions uh an advisor maybe for sony was it i think oh yeah i know i heard about that as well yeah was, i think it's sony's mm-hmm. at least it was one of the bigger corporations wasn't it but um yeah i mean i've always felt that you know are you serious ran for president and uh i've always thought that rushkoff would have made a great vice president at least but uh but yeah no that would be quite a white house um so yeah if you guys want to get in contact with um with me uh it's ken at sittingnow.co.uk um obviously the site's sittingnow.co.uk that's pretty obvious really uh how do people get in contact with you mort um, just mart at media-underground.net I think I'll, or, set, um, I'll set you up a sitting now address as well sure yeah, can, yeah and uh, Claire is uh, your address is yes it's uh, Claire at sittingnow.co.uk okay and if you have any kind of uh, interesting news articles that you think might have slipped under Claire's radar then feel free to send a oh yeah feel free to send those over if you have any kind of suggestions about uh, how to make the, the weekly weird news more interesting anything um, go ahead and send suggestions over yeah definitely and um, one thing we've been, I keep saying it every episode, and we're gradually starting to get them now, is um, a lot of people listen to our show on iTunes. Um, and for those of you that do, if you could spend two minutes just writing us a little review uh, on iTunes, then the more reviews we get, the more kind of our rank goes up, I think, on iTunes. And, you know, that's a, that would be really great if you could do more reviews, because obviously we want more people to listen to us. <laughs> um, but yeah, that would be great. Uh, we'll be back next week. Um, I'm not quite sure who we've got on. We've got two people booked for next week, so I'm not quite sure which it's going to be, so I won't say now, but it'll be someone cool. And yeah, look out for episode 23, which is only three episodes away now, and I think that's going to be quite a big episode for us, so uh, keep your ears peeled for that one, I guess. Uh, so yeah, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>